Good morning. We got a lot of scripture and a lot of passion to work through today and, and a little time. So can you hang tight with me this morning? Can we hang together with this? Um, go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verse 29 and 30. Back in the day um, when empires would overcome other empires, um, and you may know this, but they, they wouldn't just, uh, just build bigger and better empires around the old empire. What they would do, they would build their empire on top of another empire. And when that empire would be conquered, they would build an empire on top of that and on top of that and on top of that. And they would just build empires on top of the one that they had just overcome. Over the last 2,000 years, Christianity has evolved in a lot of ways. Like Christianity, if you think about it, we've built across the, the world majestic cathedrals in the name of Christianity. We've, uh, we've built churches with high steeples and churches with huge capacity. And we've added pews and then chairs and then back to pews and, and pulpits and hymnals and contemporary music and, and committees and liturgies. And the IRS giving us this beautiful thing called 501c3 status. You know, they've done all these things that, that the church has just evolved and there's nothing wrong with any of those things, not a thing in the world, but none of those things are, are primal. And what, I'm, what this whole series is based on and what I'm curious about is, is like the Roman effect of building empire on top of empire on top of empire, the way they would do that. I just wonder if the layers of Christian tradition have unintentionally been hidden uh, by what lies above the primal thing that, that it's really based on. You know, what's the primal aspect? The word primal means this. It means original, of first importance, to be primary. That's what primal means. And so it makes me ask, when all of the surface stuff, all the things that are okay, but all the surface stuff, when all that's stripped away, what's the primal essence of Christianity? Let me give you this. Then let me give you the primal problem first, if you don't mind just to, to take this in. Christians are most known for what we're against more than what we're for. I hate that. We're, we're more known for what we're against than what we're for. And it seems like we've done one of two things. We've either um, spiritualized the American dream or we've materialized the gospel. And you can just kind of take your pick because either are, are horrible to do. It seems like we've done one of those two things and that that's a primal problem in our faith and a primal problem in, in just who we are. Certain truths qualify to be primal truths of scripture. Like you think of Bible-believing, God-fearing, Christ-loving Christians will disagree on a bunch of doctrinal stuff, you know, when it comes to the tribulation. Is it pre, mid, post, all that? You know, all that, we, we have hundreds of different denominations, which all that's fine. Again, but the chief about primal truths, the chief of all the primal truths in Scripture that you have got to get beyond anything else is what Jesus called the first commandment, the great commandment. And then we could also translate it to mean the primal commandment. And that primal commandment is supposed to be primal because it's of first importance. So Mark chapter 12, verses 29 and 30, just states this. The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. He says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your, what you guys? Heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Listen, Jesus was a genius. I mean, Jesus was just a genius. He had the ability to take complex spiritual truths. I mean, things that were just ridiculously complex and break them down in this simplistic, irrefutable, unforgettable way. And it's humbling to say this, but this is just true of me. I, I tend to do the opposite. I complicate Christianity. My wife will tell you, I complicate everything. I do across the board. I complicate it all. And in fact, when I was preparing for this message, um, I hopped on Facebook and just and just put as my status. I said, tell me 
when you read scripture, what does love the Lord your God with all your heart? What's that mean to you? And this is some of the people from our church, a college student said, I think it means we're to love Christ with the totality of our being and energy. But to do this, you've got to truly know him. Christ isn't honored by groundless love. If we don't know Christ, then there's nothing in our hearts to awaken love. An adult in our church said, the heart has to represent an emotional drive and connection. I like this, our desires. This is the hardest of those four that are underlined. The heart is the hardest of the four to rein in because it's the most fickle and it's the most unpredictable. One of our high school students said, it means to love God first and above all, to put God's will for your life above your own desires to say, I love God more than this addiction, more than those friends, more than anything else. It means that God shouldn't have to share your attention or your priorities with any other habit or person. He deserves all of your heart, not just the leftovers, all of your time, all of your strength, not just the spare. And then one of our junior high students said, God is meant to be our core the source of spiritual power. This connection has to be present so that demonstrating God's love through our daily lives becomes natural and instinctive just as the beating of our hearts. Which, by the way, um, with those two responses, who would say that teenagers are just kids who don't understand? I mean, really. Isn't that amazing? And that's true. I agree with all of them. Here's the temptation. The temptation for us is to ask the question, what's wrong with this generation? The right question is, what's wrong with the church That's the right question. What's wrong with the church? And here's the answer. The answer is we're not great at the great commandment. This is the great commandment. This is what Jesus says is above all, this is primal. This is, if you get anything, this is it. You gotta get this. We're not great at the great commandment. And to be honest, we're not even good at it. We have got to be great at the great commandment. If we're great at anything, we've got to be great at the great commandment because this this is where we're going, this whole series, the heart of Christianity. It's primal compassion. That's what the heart part of it is. We need primal compassion. The soul of Christianity is primal wonder. To be in awe, to be in wonder of God, the mind of Christianity is primal curiosity. We're created to be curious and and we act on that curiosity with the truths of God and the strength of Christianity is primal energy. This is our series. This is where we're going the next four weeks and today we're talking about the heart. And my question for you is, does your heart break for the things that break the heart of God? Does your heart break? Does your heart ache over that? Because that's primal. Your heart should ache over certain things. And I believe that scripture is the inspired word of God. I believe it like every, every, right down to like the the jot and the tittle, like everything. That means that every word sequence is significant. And you're like, oh, that's out of proportion. No, I don't think it is. I, I think that when Jesus reveals these four primal elements of love, like beyond anything, you need to do this church. Beyond that, the heart comes first. And I think it comes first for a reason. I'm afraid that like the Western church has tried to engage our culture mind first. And, and, and that's me too. Like I want that. I, I struggle with that myself. I want to be engaged with my mind first instead of my heart first. But most times, and you know this, and some of you are cold today because we've tried to engage your mind so much. The church in the world has tried to engage your mind before the truths have ever even been involved in an open heart. Before it ever gets into your mind, your heart has to be open to receive it. It's about a heart change not a mind change. Ezekiel 36, a few different passages we're turning to, you don't have to turn to all of them, but Ezekiel 36 has this beautiful picture of what I'm talking about with heart change. It says this in in verse 22 through 27, it says, therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the the sovereign Lord says, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm gonna do these things. And I love that by the way, he's like, this isn't for you. I'm not gonna do this awesome thing for you, this is for me. 
It's for my glory. I'm the Lord. I'm, I'm God. And he keeps going and says, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you've gone, I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name you have profaned among them, then the nations will know that I am the Lord. They're gonna know that, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nation. And here it is, you guys, pay, pay close attention. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. And he continues it by saying, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You know what I found to be true just over, just getting a pastor for about five years now at Kirby and I love it so much and what I'm finding to be true in verse 25, if you have your Bibles open to it, verse 25 when it says, talks about purity, I'm gonna sprinkle clean water on you. That part of purity, to me purity equals potential. I think I'm learning this over and over that if someone has pure motives and a pure heart, there is nothing that God can't do with them. And that's exciting to me when, when, I, when, when, when I have little girls that are pretty crazy and I think, but, but they have pure hearts. There's potential in that. And when some of you, you say, I just struggle with this sin and I fall and I fall and I fall, but you have a pure heart and that has huge potential. There's nothing that God can't do with you. And I think that's exciting. I think that's incredible. The heart of your heavenly father is that his mercies are new every morning. On your life, not just in general, on your life, he can do something amazing with your life. So it's not just, Lord, forgive me for everything I've done in my life, amen. No, no, no. Like with my girls, like the other day, Emily just, just straight up hit Anna Claire right in the face. Just boom, just hit her right in the face. Emily's two. I don't know where she gets this. I don't hit Anna Claire in the face. She just hits her in the face. And so I'm like, what's going on here? And so I walk in there, I'm like, Emily, what are you doing? And she doesn't even look at me. She just goes, she's still looking at TV. Sorry, daddy. Sorry, daddy. I'm like, no, you don't even know what you're sorry for. She just knew the tone of my voice. And I think, I can't pray to God like that. I can't repent of my sins in that same way. I need to show him what I'm sorry about, what I repent over. And no, I can't remember all of them. But that's weak prayer to pray like that. I need to, to I'm talking about a, a deep cleaning where I really show God what I'm sorry for. I really allow God to excavate the depths of my heart and all the stuff that shouldn't be there. Because I'm telling you, purity in you equals huge potential, and there's nothing that God can't do with that. And he talks about the heart in this, and I, and I just love that, because the truth is that I'm a sophisticated idolater. That's what I am, and that's what you are. We are sophisticated with it, because nine times out of 10, the stuff that, that are our idols is something good. It's just something that, that's become an end in itself instead of a means to an end, right? We use our money for God, but money is many people's idols. Sex after marriage is a wonderful thing, but when it rises above anything else, it's an idol. Your, your job, you need a job. God says it's great for you to work, but when it, when it involves everything in your life and it's the only thing that you think about and the only thing that you do, it's an idol. Your family can be an idol. All this stuff, we are sophisticated idolaters. We don't bow to statues. We bow to many other things though with our hearts and with our lives. We need for God in this passage, just like this passage, I need for God to give me a new heart. Revelation 2, 4 Calls, a, calls me out and calls you out in this powerful way, in this simplistic way. It just says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Love being from your heart, love being what you draw to, love being what you care most about. You've forsaken it. 
Your eyes have become blind to the things that you don't even want to be first, but you've allowed them to be first and now you don't know how to let go of it. You've forsaken who he is. This is primal. This is primal truth. Jesus just says so much and so little, you guys. Like He wraps all of that up with one command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Every part of you. Love God. And this is what I want to talk about today. Let me tell you a, a piece of truth that contradicts um, just the way that most of us think. Even what some of us would view as true. God's primary interest for us does not start with our behavior. What we're supposed to do. In fact, if you look at the very first of the Ten Commandments. If you look at the very first one. The first and most important wasn't don't murder. Right? Do not murder. Do not steal. But it says that you shouldn't have any other gods before me. That's the very first thing. You don't put anything else in, in front of me. He's, in, he's central of your life. Above anything else. Above everything else. If you look at that. That's the very first part of the Ten Commandments. If you look at the very last one. The Tenth Commandment in Exodus 20 verse 17. It says you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Don't covet don't want like that. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant, maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It doesn't start at our behavior. He's not most interested in what we do. And for many of us, we think, yes, he is. That's not primal. That's not the truth. He's not interested most in what you do on the outside. That's not just seen in, in the first commandment, seen the 10th commandment. And, and I think it's odd that he bookends the Ten Commandments with these two things about the heart. What he's talking about here is a word that I would love for you to write down and just to grasp and begin to mull over this, but a word called desire. This word desire is huge in scripture. Something, it, it represents something that's going on inside of you, something that's in the depths of who you are. The definition of covet, if you look it up in the dictionary, is simply longing, lusting, or eager desire. That word desire, the destructible, devastating effects of desire. Because if you look back at the very first book of the Bible in Genesis, you look at even the first few chapters of the Bible in Genesis, you see the desires of Adam and Eve and how the enemy helped to misdirect those desires, right? Satan through the serpent began to, to misdirect their desires and God is saying in Exodus right here that you are accountable to me not only for what you do but also for what you think and how you feel and the desire that you wish for. It's beyond what you do. Forget what you do. It's not an outside thing. It's an inside thing. And so our culture today helps to misdirect a lot of this. And it's not just to blame it on the culture, but I'm saying we live in a culture that helps you misdirect. And it fuels us in two ways. It fuels us with consumerism, which just says the main motive of, of our lives is to accumulate, is to pile on, is to, to use it, to enjoy it, to get as much stuff as we can and just throughout our lifetime and, just, and just, just attain as much as we can and get as much money as we can. All that stuff is consumerism. Get as much for you can for yourself because it's all about you. The other closely re related thing to culture that, that, that fuels us and pushes us is this sense of individualism. It fuels us. It gives you a sense of entitlement. Even at somebody else's expense, even at somebody else's pain, that this concept will eat away at the church and take her heart. Like take the church's heart and just point it in a way to where we come here, including this pastor, that we come here and we think it's all about us. That music's all about me. The way that preacher preaches is all about me. The way uh, I think you should respond as a church, it's all about me. What can Kirby do for me? And this sense of entitlement and individualism is wrong and it's off and we've lost the primal heart of it. Because in Exodus, God addresses in a clear way what's going on in our heads 
with all of our thoughts. He addresses this in a, in a passionate way and he really communicates what God views as important and what he doesn't view as important. God says, I'm interested more in what's going on in your head that would lead you to that sin, maybe even more than the sin itself. I wanna know what stirred that in you. I wanna know what got your heart pumping in that direction. What made you do that more than you just did the wrong thing? I care more for that. Jesus Christ himself explains this, that I'm just not interested in you not murdering. You remember some of these passages in the New Testament. He says, it's not just about you not murdering, but I'm all about you not hating others in your mind, not letting bitterness build up in your heart. He's talking about guard your heart. He's talking about guard your emotions. He's talking about guard your motives. It's about the heart. It begins with the heart. He's talking about something very internal here. And the thought is this, is that if you violate um, this 10th commandment, if you just take just to, just to the 10th commandment, if you violate that 10th commandment, you'll violate all the others. If you violate that first commandment about the heart, you'll violate all the others. In the same way, if you hold to the first commandment, if you hold to the 10th commandment, you'll find it much, much easier to conquer all the other commandments, all the other things that you know you are to be about. And it's interesting, like I said to me, that he bookends the 10 commandments with two different angles on the heart. What's going on inside a person's heart? The internal is always more important than the external. Always. Always. So how do you guard your desires? Practically, I mean, just think in your mind, how are you guarding your heart? You have to believe. This is how you start. You have to believe that God is leading your life. If you're a Christian in here, how do I guard my heart? How do I guard my desires? You gotta start with knowing that God is in control and leading your life. If you struggle with jealousy, If you struggle with coveting other people's jobs, money, lives, opportunities, it's a great chance. And this is humbling to admit it because it's in me too. There's a great chance that deep down you think that God has no idea what he's doing. Chances are that that you're not so sure that God has a good grasp on where he's leading you. If you keep trying to take the reins back, if if you've lost sight that he is really leading your life. So do you believe that God is leading your life? Because the truth is that as you believe that more and more, you can look at someone else, their, their nice ride, and say, man, nice car, without coveting it. If you know that God's leading you in a direction, you can look at somebody else's opportunities. You can look at somebody else's job, somebody else's family. You can look at their giftedness, their talents, and not be jealous and keep this in you and, and, and ruin your heart and hollow yourself out. But you can look at them and say, there's this deep sense of trust and contentment that God has a good grasp on what's going on in my life. And he's giving me what I need, not just what I want. And it's all built around the heart of God, more around your heart and your desires. Is this making sense? Do you get this? This is big. The Pharisees messed this up in an unbelievable way, y'all. I'm talking about they messed this up in a ridiculous way. Over 100 years, and some of you know this already, but over 100 years, they created this comprehensive list outside of God's word, this comprehensive list of religious do's and don'ts. How many do you think there were? 613, just extra things. They decided to tack on to it. Don't we do that? We do that. We do that all the time. They tacked on 613 of them and Jesus peeled back all this stuff to this primal statement when all the rules, all the regulations, all the traditions, all the institutions, the liturgies, the methodologies are peeled back. What's left is the great commandment, the primal commandment. It is Christianity in its most primal form. That's what this is. So if outside behavior is what the Christian life was all about, then Jesus wouldn't have been so harsh with the Pharisees because I'm talking about he was harsh. It would be awkward in here 
if we were all Pharisees, all right? And Jesus was preaching today. It would be awkward. And let me just show you, just, just if you don't know, he's very direct, he's very specific, he's very harsh throughout the gospels with them. The best religious keepers, if you don't know, they were the rule followers of their day so much. I mean, they were religious. They are the church. That's who they are. And, and listen to just what he says to them in Matthew 23. I'm gonna read a few verses out of this. And, uh, and you, just, you just try to take this in if this was directed at you. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Ah, that's harsh. That's harsh. These are the people that work at the church. These are the holy people of the day. And he's being so harsh to them. It's all about self-indulgence. It's all about you. He keeps going in verse 26 and 27. He says, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. That's what you are. You're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. Imagine that. He's talking to the religious, holy people. You people are hypocrites. You're doing everything right on the outside. You're like whitewashed tombs. Look at this. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs who has, who has everything right on the outside. You're dirty, right? And so you're just gonna clean this up. You're just gonna take this right off. I'm gonna clean my life. And this is what we do, church. We clean our lives just like this. Anybody wanna drink of this? Anybody wanna drink of this? No. Yeah, right, I'm gonna just clean it. I'm gonna make this look real good for you. It's gonna be great. You're gonna come over to my house this afternoon. This way we keep all our cups at our house. It's gonna be great if you ever wanna come over. It's gonna be real fun. And so he just cleans, look, you're like this. You just polish the outside and you're just working real hard and you can get it clean. You're just working real hard when on the inside is what matters. People care about what's on the outside a bit. You really care what's on the inside. You ever served a dish to somebody that you saw a little crusty something on the plate right before you pulled it out and you're like, uh-oh, mm-mm. I'm not serving that. You ever pulled out a cup and like, what can I get you to drink up? Mm, mm, mm. You know, no, not doing that. He says they are polishing like crazy on the outside. You're like whitewashed tombs. When on the inside, you've got dead men's bones. You've got mud. You've got filth. You're, you're not clean and you think you're clean. That's what you think you're doing. And they're just standing back in awe like, he's calling us dirty cups. He's calling us dead men. He's calling us, we're not washed clean. He's calling us filthy. And we're the holy ones. We're the ones who's preaching these people. Talk to them, Jesus. And he keeps going, the last part of it, in verse 28. He says, in the same way on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, the filth, the mud, the dirt, all that stuff, on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You're following the 10 commandments, but you're hollow on the inside. You're doing everything right. Yeah, everything's right on the outside, but on the inside, you're dying. On the inside, you're pain. On the inside, you're a hypocrite. If Jesus was most interested in behavior, would he have said anything like this to the Pharisees? No, he would never have done that. He wouldn't have said that to those guys. He would have said, well done, you good and faithful servants. You're making up even more. You're above and beyond 613. Wow, I didn't even call you to do that. Yeah, you're doing great. He didn't say that to the Pharisees. He didn't. They had all the rules down, listen to me, and they totally missed Jesus. The Pharisees were so involved, they were so involved that they didn't even know who Jesus was, the Son of God, the Messiah, 
the savior of the world in flesh and blood. They didn't even know when they're the most religious, they were following all the rules. And if that were most important to God, they would have been first in line. They would have been at the top of that list. And Jesus is saying, you've got it totally backwards. And so many of us have it totally backwards. It's all wrong. We're polished cups on the outside. I come here looking real nice and we come here saying the right things and acting the right way. And on the inside, I am so filthy with my sin and so dirty and so backward and so hollowed out. I'm like dead men's bones I'm like I'm it's like I'm serving you a filthy cup that you don't realize is filthy because it looks real nice and polished on the outside I'm polishing the outside of the cup where the inside is filthy you're following all the commands when your heart is wicked and just dirty he's saying I'm interested in you so much I want a relationship with you but I'm interested in your heart before I'm interested in your actions that's what I care most about In Luke 6, verse 43 and 45, he gives this illustration about this tree. And he says, no good tree bears bad fruit. That doesn't happen. Nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. He says, they don't do that. The good man brings good things, here it is church, out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, out of that overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Here's my apple tree right here. You like This is real. Sorry. But if I, were to, if I were to just say, you're a tree, church. This is who you are. This is who you are. And if I said, you're an apple tree, actually. Did you know that? I'm an apple tree. Yeah, you're an apple tree. And let me show you how I know you're an apple tree. This is how you're an apple tree. Because I can just make apples and just slam them right on here. Look, you're like an apple tree. Isn't this awesome? And he says, no good tree bears if, if it's, uh, no, no, you don't bear uh, good fruit from briars. You don't do that. You bear good fruit from good trees, from fruit trees. And so what we do so often, we just think, you know what? I'm just gonna try to show on the outside. I'm gonna polish the outside and I'm gonna show you that I'm an apple tree. I'm a healthy tree. And so I'm gonna duct tape apples all over this tree. You think these limbs are gonna break? I do. All this stuff, all of this, you think he's gonna... I, I, I'm just gonna put this on. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wear the right thing on a Sunday. I'm gonna say the right thing to you when I speak to our Sunday school class. I'm gonna do the right thing. No matter what else you think, no matter how you know me, no matter what you think of me, I'm going to put on the right aspects of my life outwardly to you. I'm gonna polish this cup. I'm gonna put apples on this tree and I'm gonna show you that I am religious. I've got it together, y'all. And so, ta-da, I'm an apple tree. Everybody, yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not an apple tree. You know what you are? You're a tree with apples taped on it. That's what you are. That's what, that's what you are. He says, you're, you're a cup that's awesome on the outside. You polish so nice. The inside, you're struggling and you're dirty. Uh, you're like whitewashed tombs when on the inside you've got dead men's bones. You're like a tree with duct taped apples that you try to look healthy and yeah, the apples look great, but they're not yours. They're not from your heart because out of your heart, and this is what he says to them. He says, out of a good heart will come good fruit and out of a bad heart will be bad fruit. And when you start duct taping this stuff on, You become something that you're not. You become a whitewashed tomb. You become a cup that's not really clean. You become a duct-taped apple tree. If Jesus was most interested in our behavior, he wouldn't have spoken anything about this. He says, I'm interested, not in a diseased, unhealthy tree. 
I'm interested, and he shares this all through Luke 6, actually, if you read it later. When we tape apples to a tree, it doesn't make it an apple tree. Just doing the right things doesn't make the inside of our hearts right. It doesn't make us okay to just do the things you know you're supposed to do without a pure heart, without pure motives behind it. It's like taping apples onto a tree. And to the outside world, you're like, man, I just got it together. And you really, really don't. Some of you think like this, that I, I think I've got enough apples taped on my tree to go to heaven. I've got these outward works. I've got this outward look. I've got this outward proclamation of my life to get God's acceptance. And I've, I've done enough. And I say, no, the Pharisees proved that thought to be so wrong. God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need all the stuff that you have. He wants a relationship with you. Jesus said, man, you are covered with apples. You look good. You're, you're, you're apple taping pros. You look awesome, but you're not an apple tree. It's primal. It's about your heart first. First, above anything else, all other religions in the world, you look at almost any other religion in the world, believe that you have to behave in such a way to get into the good graces of God. My apples have got to be taped on real nice. I gotta tape them all on. It's gonna be real sharp. And this thought has done more to keep people away from God than maybe anything else. Maybe anything else that this thought has caused tons of people all around, even in this room this morning, to think I've gotta get my life right before I... I become a Christian before I come to Christ. And I'm telling you right now, that is backwards. That is backward thinking. God's message in, in, this, in this word has always been and will always be the total opposite. There's this little phrase in Exodus chapter 20. The very first part of that chapter in verse two just simply says, I am the Lord your God. That's who I am. I'm the Lord your God. This is before he gives them the commandments. He says, I'm your God, you're my people. Now as my people and me being your God, now let me give you some commands. Now that we have this relationship, I'm gonna give you these decrees. He doesn't say, now this is how you're gonna get in good with me. We don't have a relationship, but if you want one, here's your commandments. Here's what you're gonna do to be a part of this. He says, you're already in with me. I'm the Lord, your God. God wasn't trying to restrict them. He was trying to keep his free people free. He was trying to do that throughout this whole process. And so God's laws and rules, listen to me, are not conditions of the relationship. They're confirmation of the relationship. Cleaning your life up, getting some things right, that's not what you have to do to be in a relationship with God. It's a result of giving your life to him that you do those things. He helps you clean your life up. That's what you need him for. You can't produce apples. You can't do that. You can't clean the inside, but you can clean the outside. You can't clean the inside. You need him. You're in desperate need of him. He does this from the inside out and you're desperately in need of it. What's that mean? What's all that mean? What are you talking? How does that fit for me? It means this. It means, and I love getting to tell you this this morning. It means you don't have to tape on fruit. That's what it means. It means that you don't have to have everything perfectly in order to show up in here and to to begin a relationship with Christ today. You don't have to tape fruit on anymore. That game that we play, relationship with God is not built around rule keeping. It's a reflection of trust in a relationship, right? How many of you make rules for your kids? Make rules for your kids? I make rules for my kids. I make rules for them, Uh, life rules. Why? Because I'm their dad. That's who I am. I don't make life rules for anyone else's kids. I mean, we have rules within youth group, but that's not their life rules that are given out by by you and, and the parents and grandparents of our church. It's because I'm in a relationship with my kids. 
that I make guidelines, that I make rules. We're in this relationship, and so I have certain commands. I have certain things that we, that we are all about. If we are rule-keeping, if that is our only indicator that we belong to God, what happens when we mess up? When we mess up, it's game over. If, if the rules are what keeps us okay, when the rules stop or when I mess that up, it's over. And the truth is that, that that's not it. You're still his. The truth is that God knows you're gonna blow it. He knows you. He, he, he knows what you're gonna do and he gives you provision for when you do blow it. Why? Because you're still his even when you blow it. You're still his. You mess up your sins, the things that you wouldn't want anybody else to know. He says, you're still mine. You haven't broken that for me. I'm here to help you get this right. I'm here to grow fruit on you. It's a heart thing. It's not about what you do. Stop polishing the outside, polish the inside. He's a loving and amazing father and he has our best interest in mind. And that's when our obedience comes in. When you realize he has your best interest in mind. When you realize he loves you for you, all your sin, all your filth. I'm the Lord your God before you ever did it. He told everybody, proclaimed, God proclaimed to the world when Jesus was baptized, before he ever did a miracle, before he ever died on a cross for you. He said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Before it ever happened, he loves you. When you realize that, your obedience will follow. Your obedience will come into play because you know he cares. Your kids' obedience, my children's obedience knows. They know that, that I love them, that I have this relationship with them. And because of that, they're gonna listen to what their daddy says. Same thing for me and you. Exact same thing for me and you. God, here I am. Maybe that's what we need to do today is just say, God, I'm giving you myself. Will you just please clean the inside of me? I am so filthy and I'm working so hard to clean the outside. I'm not gonna tape on apples to prove to you that I'm good enough. I've done it far too long. I know that's not who I should be. I'm never gonna be good enough. I know that. I can't tape on enough apples. 613 rules isn't enough. Maybe we can grasp this. The way we communicate to others won't just be about behavior change. That if we can just allow them to grasp it's a heart transplant. It's not just about doing the right things, but being close to God. If there's one thing to take away from today, it's this right here. It's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. That's primal. If you read the gospels, and in fact, I just challenge you to do it. Just read the gospels from the perspective of God being interested in your heart. You read it from that perspective and it is just gonna blow up in your face that God is incredibly interested in your heart above anything else. The repeating message, the continued beat of the drum of scripture is not do the right thing, say the right thing, do the right thing. But the message that is pounded home by Jesus throughout the gospels and in all of God's word is, is pay attention to your heart. Pay attention to you and as you pay attention to your heart, you're gonna realize this. And this is gonna be painful, but you'll realize, wow, my heart is so dirty. My heart is a mess. I was polishing the wrong side of the cup when the inside needs it all along. I need real fruit. And then you can come to a place where you can realize that we can't polish away the dirt. Listen to me, you cannot polish away the dirt that's on the inside. You can't do it, it's not possible. You can't wash away your own sin. You can't wash away your own filthiness. Jesus seems to imply in that passage that we read earlier that you can polish away the outside dirt and make it look real nice, real sweet. You can make it look real polished, clean up on the outside, righteous and blameless, all that. You can't do that on the inside. It can't be a, some fake game. You can't do it. The thing is, when we pay attention to our heart, I start to realize I can't ever get this right, can I, Lord? I'm a pastor and I can't get this right, can I? And he says, no, mm -mm. you need me. You gotta rely on me. It's not about you. It's not the same as the outside. It requires a cleansing 
from Jesus. It requires me to come to Jesus where you'll find that you'll finally realize, and some of us need this, you'll finally realize that you are in desperate need for a savior outside of yourself. I'm in desperate need for God to guide me as a husband, a father, a pastor. I can't do this. You can't do this. I'm in desperate need of a savior. Some of you feel like you are a long way away from God and I'm here to tell you, you're not. You think you're so far off. You think your sin has just encompassed everything in your life to the extent to where you just can't do it. And I'm telling you what, you can't do it. But the moment you turn around, listen, this is how I've got to close this. The moment you turn around, you're gonna find that God had followed you to wherever you are. He follows you right there. He's not off and distant. You're like, I'm so far away, I'm so far away. You turn around and he's right there. He's followed you all the way. If you simply turn to him, his grace is there. It's ready. It's waiting to change you, to accept you, to hold you. He wants to give you a new heart, not to require all this stuff of you first. No, no, no. I want you to have a new heart. I want to give you this transplant. Psalm 23, you know this psalm. Beautiful psalm. It it, it ends with this famous part, this famous line in in Psalm verse 6. And I love this promise. It says, surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. Surely goodness and love and all those mercies and all that, it'll follow me. And in in the Hebrew, the word follow is a hunting term. And what it really means is that my goodness is gonna hunt you down. My love is gonna hunt you down. No matter how far away you think you are, no matter how much you ridiculed me for Peter in the New Testament, no matter how many times you deny me, my love is going to hunt you down. And as soon as you turn to me, I'm gonna be there to cleanse the inside of your cup. And I'm not just some genie in a bottle to to just be played with and toyed with. I'm God, I'm the Lord, you're God. I'm mighty, I'm powerful, I'm the king. That's who I am. But as soon as you turn to me, I'll take steps to you. I'll clean everything. I'll start putting apples on your tree. I'll start putting this thing in perspective for you. My goodness is just going to hunt you down. So I don't care how far from God you are. The moment you turn around, the moment that you get it right, he's right there ready and willing to forgive you and give you this new start, a brand new start. It's the understanding of our sinfulness that drives us to God's grace. We need God's grace. I'm in need of a rescuer. I'm in need of a savior, someone who can clean the inside of my heart because I just can't do it. My hope and my prayer today, in fact, our prayer for this entire series, my hope is that you would pay attention to the inside and as you do that, that you would see just how needy you really are. Can you just stand with me and let's pray? Father, Lord, we are in desperate need for a real truth. We clean the outside of our cups and we polish it and we make it look real sharp and real nice, Lord, but that's just not it. That's not good enough. Lord, we need, we need you to cleanse the inside of us, Lord. And so, God, I pray for these people in this auditorium right now, God, that are listening to this message, God, that they would, that they would really evaluate themselves and that they would really see their need for a Savior, their need to come to know you, God. And so, Lord, if that's today, if they don't know you, if they're, if, if they're not a follower of you, God, may today be their day. May they accept you, Lord. May they come to know you. And God, begin that heart transformation, that heart transplant. They can't do it on their own. I can't do it on my own. And so, Lord, may you just do a work in us. Some of us have been polishing for years. We're Christians, and we've been polishing. We've been adding rules. We've been adding regulations. We've got this bitterness inside. We've got this hatred inside. We're coveting. We're not putting you first. And so, Lord, I pray for these Christians, Lord, that they would get that right, that they would say, no, it's not about me, is it? Lord, it's all about you. 
It's about you and your truth and the work that you're doing in our lives and in our church and in the body of Christ worldwide. You want something primal for us today. And so, Lord, may these, uh, may these wonderful people get that. Lord, may we grasp that. May our church grasp that. May we lead like we know that. So listen, if that's you, just, just keep talking to him. Just bow your heads. Just, just talk to him. Say, man, I need you. I don't know how to be saved. Listen, just tell him you need him. That, I, you know, that you believe in him, that you know he rose from the dead, that you know that he wants something greater for your life, that you're going to try your very best to move away from sin, but you want a relationship. You're going to need his help to remove the sin from you. You can't do it on your own. That's what being saved is like, praying a prayer like that. So just take some time. Just talk to him. If you need help, people pray with you at an altar. People love to pray with you to help walk you through scripture, to help walk you through truth. But just get this, that it's all about the heart. That's what it's all about.